Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Good evening. Tonight's readings come from Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. This episode is a throwback episode to a story I read to you back in April this year. The Christmas period has had me extremely busy and I still haven't done any Christmas shopping, so I hope to bring you another episode very soon after I get it all done. It's been a busy year, but a good one, and I hope you've enjoyed yours too as we head into the Christmas period. I'm grateful to have been able to help people everywhere get a good night's sleep throughout the year. Special thanks to iTunes listener Ali113 from the US. I'm so happy that my podcast is your go-to and that it's helping. I'll keep bringing out more episodes, so rest assured, you'll have plenty of restful nights to come. My goal with this podcast is to help people everywhere get the good night's rest that they need, but I do need your help to do this. Please jump into iTunes or wherever you're listening. Subscribe and leave a review. You would be surprised at how helpful this is. It's a really small thing, but it does help me reach more people who need a good night's rest. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte Chapter 2 I resisted all the way a new thing for me, and a circumstance which greatly strengthened the bad opinion Bessie and Miss Abbott were disposed to entertain of me. The fact is, I was a trifle beside myself, or rather out of myself, as the French would say. I was conscious that a moment's mutiny had already rendered me liable to strange penalties, and like any other rebel slave, I felt resolved in my desperation to go all lengths. Hold her arms, Miss Abbott. She's like a mad cat. For shame... For shame, cried the lady's maid. What shocking conduct, Miss Eyre, to strike a gentleman, your benefactress's son, your young master. Master, how is he, my master? Am I a servant? No, 
you are less than a servant, for you do nothing for your keep. There, sit down and think over your wickedness. They had got me by this time into the apartment indicated by Mrs. Reed and had thrust me upon a stool. My impulse was to rise from it like a spring. Their two pair of hands arrested me instantly. If you don't sit still, you must be tied down, said Bessie. Miss Abbott, lend me your garters. She would break mine directly. Miss Abbott turned to divest a stout leg of the necessary ligature. This preparation for bonds and the additional ignominy it inferred took a little of the excitement out of me. Don't take them off, I cried. I will not stir. In guarantee whereof, I attached myself to my seat by my hands. Mind you don't, said Bessie, and when she had ascertained that I was really subsiding, she loosened her hold of me. Then she and Miss Abbott stood with folded arms, looking darkly and doubtfully on my face, as incredulous of my sanity. She never did so before, at last, said Bessie, turning to Abigail. But it was always in her, was the reply. I've told Mrs. Often my opinion about the child, and Mrs. agreed with me. She's an underhand little thing. I never saw a girl of her age with so much cover. Bessie answered not, but ere long, addressing me, she said, You ought to be aware, miss, that you are under obligations to Mrs. Reed. She keeps you. If she were to turn you off, you would have to go to the poorhouse. I had nothing to say to these words. They were not new to me. My very first recollections of existence included hints of the same kind. The reproach of my dependence had become a vague sing-song in my ear, very painful and crushing, but only half intelligible. Miss Abbott joined in. 
and you ought not to think yourself on an equality with the Mrs. Reed and Master Reed, because Mrs. kindly allows you to be brought up with them. They will have a great deal of money and you will have none. It is your place to be humble and to try to make yourself agreeable to them. What we tell you is for your good, added Bessie, in no harsh voice. You should try to be useful and pleasant then, perhaps, you would have a home here. But if you become passionate and rude, Mrs. will send you away, I am sure. Besides, said Miss Abbott, God will punish her. He might strike her dead in the midst of her tantrums, and then where would she go? Come, Bessie, we will leave her. I wouldn't have her heart for anything. Say your prayers, Miss Eyre, when you are by yourself, for if you don't repent, Something bad might be permitted to come down the chimney and fetch you away. They went, shutting the door and locking it behind them. The red room was a square chamber, very seldom slept in, I might say never. Indeed, unless when a chance influx of visitors at Gateshead Hall rendered it necessary to turn to account all the accommodation it contained. Yet it was one of the largest and stateliest chambers in the mansion. A bed supported on massive pillars of mahogany, hung with curtains of deep red damask, stood out like a tabernacle in the centre. The two large windows, with their blinds always drawn down, were half shrouded in festoons and falls of similar drapery. The carpet was red. The table at the foot of the bed was covered with a crimson cloth. The walls were a soft fawn colour with a blush of pink in it. The wardrobe, the toilet table, the chairs were of darkly polished old mahogany. Out of these deep surrounding shades rose high 
and glared white. The piled-up mattresses and pillows of the bed spread with a snowy Marseille counterpane. Scarcely less prominent was an ample cushioned easy chair near the head of the bed, also white, with a footstool before it, and looking, as I thought, like a pale throne. This room was chill, because it seldom held a fire. It was silent, because remote from the nursery and the kitchen. Solemn, because it was known to be so seldom entered. The housemaid alone came here on Saturdays to wipe the mirrors and the furniture a week's quiet dust and Mrs. Reed herself at far intervals visited it to review the contents of a certain secret drawer in the wardrobe where were stored divers parchments, her jewel casket, and a miniature of her deceased husband. And in those last word lies the secret of the Red Room, the spell which kept it so lonely in spite of its grandeur. Mr. Reed had been dead nine years. It was in this chamber he breathed his last. Here he lay in state. Hence his coffin was borne by the undertaker's men. And since that day, a sense of dreary consecration had guarded it from frequent intrusion. My seat, to which Bessie and the bitter Miss Abbott had left me riveted, was a low ottoman near the marble chimney piece. The bed rose before me. To my right hand there was the high, dark wardrobe with subdued, broken reflections varying the gloss of its panels. To my left were the muffled windows, a great looking glass between them repeated the vacant majesty of the bed and room. I was not quite sure whether they had locked the door, and when I dared move, I got up and went to see. Alas, yes, no jail was ever more secure. Returning, 
I had to cross before the looking glass, my fascinated glance involuntarily explored the depth it revealed. All looked colder and darker in that visionary hollow than in reality, and the strange little figure there gazing at me with a white face and arms specking the gloom, the glittering eyes of fear moving where all else was still, had the effect of a real spirit. I thought it like one of the tiny phantoms, half fairy, half imp. Bessie's evening stories, represented as coming out of lone, ferny dells in moors, and appearing before the eyes of belated travellers, I returned to my stool. Superstition was with me at that moment, but it was not yet her hour for complete victory. My blood was still warm. The mood of the revolted slave was still bracing me with its bitter vigour. I had to stem a rapid rush of retrospective thought before I quailed to the dismal present. All John Reed's violent tyrannies, all his sister's proud indifference, all his mother's aversion, all the servants' partiality, turned up in my disturbed mind like a dark deposit in a turbid well. Why was I always suffering, always browbeaten, always accused, forever condemned? Why could I never please? Why was it useless to try to win anyone's favour? Eliza, who was headstrong and selfish, was respected. Georgiana, who had a spoiled temper, a very acrid spite, a captious and insolent carriage, was universally indulged. Her beauty, her pink cheeks and golden curls seemed to give delight to all her who looked at her and to purchase indemnity from every fault. John no one thwarted, much less punished, though he twisted the necks of the pigeons, killed the little pea-cheeks, set the dogs at the sheep, stripped the hothouse vines 
of their fruit and broke the buds off the choicest plants in the conservatory. He called his mother old girl too, sometimes reviled for her dark skin similar to his own, bluntly disregarded her wishes, not unfrequently tore and spoiled her silk attire, and he was still her own darling. I dared commit no fault. I strove to fulfil every duty and I was termed naughty and tiresome, sullen and sneaking from morning to noon and from noon to night. My head still ached and bled with the blow and fall I had received. No one had reproved John for wantonly striking me, and because I had turned against him to avert farther irrational violence, I was loaded with gentle opprobrium. Unjust, unjust, said my reason, forced by the agonizing stimulus into precocious though transitionary power and resolve, equally wrought up, instigated some strange expedient to achieve escape from insupportable oppression as running away, or if that could not be effected, never eating or drinking more, and letting myself die. What a consternation of soul was mine that dreary afternoon. How all my brain was in tumult, and all my heart in insurrection. Yet in what darkness... What dense ignorance was the mental battle fought? I could not answer the ceaseless inward question why I thus suffered now at the distance of I will not say how many years I see it clearly. I was a discord in Gates Head Hall. I was like nobody there. I had nothing in harmony with Mrs. Reed or her children or her chosen vassalage. If they did not love me, in fact, as little I loved them, they were not bound to regard with affection a thing that could not sympathise with one amongst them, a heterogeneous thing, opposed to them in temperate 
in capacity, in propensities, a useless thing, incapable of serving their interest or adding to their pleasure, a noxious thing, cherishing the germs of indignation at their treatment, of contempt of their judgment. I know that I had been a sanguine, brilliant, careless, exacting, handsome, romping child, though equally dependent and friendless. Mrs. Reed would have endured my presence more complacently. Her children would have entertained for me more of the cordiality of fellow feeling. The servants would have been less prone to make me the scapegoat of the nursery. And that concludes readings from chapter 2 of the book. I hope you're feeling a little drowsy. I know I am after reading through it, which is very good if you're trying to get to sleep. Until next time, good night and speak to you soon.